it's crazy how much quicker basic research became because of CRISPR. And that's why I'm genuinely excited about CRISPR for basic research. It's this incredible tool and, and suddenly they can not cut the DNA, but change a single letter of the DNA or they can change something on the epigenetic code. It's pretty crazy what we can do with this and I'm sure it's crazy what we will be able to do with this. It's a milestone method that will influence research for years to come. Welcome to Innovational Correctness, a podcast all about innovation and transformation, hosted by David Luna, author, keynote speaker, and founder of Gamma Digital and Beyond. David and his guests discuss real-world practical advice on how to best harness the creativity of your employees and go from idea to product, giving you unique perspectives and insights into their success, all while separating hype from reality and replacing bullshit bingo with common sense. Let's jump right in into the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Innovational Correctness Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about CRISPR. CRISPR is considered one of the biggest and most important science stories of the past decade and will probably remain one of the biggest science stories for the foreseeable future. So if at this point you're getting really hungry for some crispy fried chicken, well, you're going to be really disappointed. If you haven't heard of CRISPR yet, the short explanation goes something like this. So in the past decade, scientists have figured out how to exploit essentially a trick in the immune system of bacteria to edit genes in other organisms such as plants, mice, and even humans. So with CRISPR, we humans can now make these edits quickly and cheaply, and here comes the kicker, in days rather than weeks or months. And this technique has worked on every organism it's been tried on. So we're talking about a very powerful new tool in the arsenal to control which genes get expressed in plants, animals, and even humans, or the ability to delete undesirable traits and potentially add desirable traits with more precision than ever before. So far, scientists have used it to reduce the severity of genetic deafness in mice, suggesting it could one day be used to treat the same type of hearing loss in humans. They've created mushrooms that don't brown easily and edited bone marrow cells in mice to treat sickle cell anemia. In the future, CRISPR might help us to develop drought-tolerant crops and even create powerful new antibiotics. CRISPR could also one day even allow us to wipe out an entire population of malaria-spreading mosquitoes or, say, resurrect once-extinct species like, say, the Tyrannosaurus rex, if we want. Thus, it could revolutionize everything from medicine to agriculture. This technology, as I mentioned, is often called CRISPR or Cas9, but we'll try to stick with CRISPR throughout the episode just to make it much easier to follow. So with COVID-19 at our doorsteps, this is the perfect time to get acquainted with this powerful new gene editing technology, CRISPR. My guest today is Joram Schwarzmann. Joram is a plant biologist that turned his passion of science communication into his calling. He has also worked in the research department of the Max Planck Institute in molecular plant physiology in Potsdam, Germany, a government-funded science communication agency, and is now communicating research in engineering and computational sciences at the TH Wildau in Berlin. He's also the winner of the 2017 Science Slam, and in his spare time, he also hosts a weekly podcast called Plants and Pipettes, where he and his co-host talk about molecular plant biology. So in this episode, we'll cover some of the following topics. 
what CRISPR is, explained in very simple terms, why it's considered to be one of the biggest scientific breakthroughs in the last decade, and why it's such a powerful tool, how CRISPR actually works and in what areas it can be applied, along with some of its limitations, how far we are from curing cancer, HIV, and other terrible diseases, discuss some of the uh, ethical concerns that many scientists have around CRISPR and how far we humans should really go when applying this technology. Without further ado, let's go meet Yoram. Welcome to the podcast, Yoram. Yeah, hi. So do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners before we start? My name is Joram Schwarzmann. I'm a science communicator and I used to work in research. I was doing plant research. I worked on tobacco as a model organism and was investigating the photosynthesis there. And through that, I switched then to science communication in one of the bigger projects that I started after my active research career was all about CRISPR. And that ties in, or I guess that's the reason why you contacted me, that I did a lot of science communication for a bit over a year on the topic of CRISPR and trying to explain what it is, why it's exciting, what are the potential like risks or things we have to be aware of, mostly in context of plants, but also in context of society and also other fields where CRISPR is applicable. And now I'm still working in science communication a little bit further away from plants, but I have plants still in my heart. I'm still doing a blog and podcast about plants, and so I'm still attached to the field of plants, although now I'm more going in the direction of engineering and technical application and computer science and so on in my communication work. But today, I think it's all about CRISPR, what we're talking about. So most people probably haven't heard of CRISPR. Do you want to explain in very simple terms what CRISPR is and what the abbreviation stands for? Yeah, CRISPR, depending on the way you look at it, can be many things. It can be a tool for genetic manipulation. It can be just a combination of a protein and a molecule called um, a guide RNA. Nucleic acid combined with a protein is a way you can look at it. Or you can look at it as a immune system of bacteria that they use against viruses. All of these things are true. And depending on from which angle you come, you see these different aspects of it. The name CRISPR stands for uh, Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And this is one of these acronyms that actually tells us already quite a bit about what we're dealing with here. If we go from the back, then we have the repeats. That means we have sequences, and in this case, it's DNA sequences that are repeated. They are found very often in the genome. They're palindromic, which means that they can be read from front to end and end to front in the same way. Like the classic example is the name Anna, A-N-N-A, can be read both ways. And there's, of, of course, there's like more complicated palindromes. But these sequences in the DNA, they can be read left to right and right to left. And they spell out the same. They are short. I didn't look up how short they are, but they're usually much shorter than 100 base pairs. I think they're even uh, much shorter than a couple dozen nucleic acids, so letters of the genetic code. Interspaced or regularly interspaced means that there is like a spacer in between these repeats. And clustered means that you find all of these things in a big cluster together in the DNA. So you have a cluster where you find these short palindromic repeats, then a little of spacer between, then another repeat, and you find a lot of them behind each other. And this is a very particular structure when you look at DNA, and that's how researchers got interested in it and actually found it, because they saw this very atypical structure in the DNA. It's not something that you usually see, and they found that in bacteria. And then they 
try to figure out what's going on here and then they realize that this these CRISPR regions this CRISPR is very important in the defense or the immune system of bacteria against particularly viruses. All right so we have quite a lot to unpack here. For one now understand why scientists came up with a very nice and compact abbreviation CRISPR so we mortals can pronounce it. Yeah. And the other aspect is, and this kind of surprised me during my research, is where I found out that bacteria can actually get infected by viruses. Now, the first question that comes to mind is, how is that possible? And I would assume that the reverse would not be possible because I know viruses tend to be much smaller than bacteria. Yeah, and I think the size is already the main critical factor in this case. Bacteria and viruses, they are depending on the size of the bacterium and the particular virus, but they are in a range of a ratio of 1 to 100 to 1 to 1,000 in terms of size. So a virus is a 1,000 times smaller than a bacterium. And therefore, you can already imagine that a bacterium has a much harder time to infect and get into the body of a virus because it's so much smaller. Um, like we can't, as humans, we can't infect a bacterium because it's smaller than we are. And that's a very simple physical explanation for why that is the case. The other thing is that viruses, they are of molecules, often proteins together with DNA that are on steroids. They are proteins and DNA hunched together, but they are not alive. They can't replicate themselves. So they need always a host system where they can inject their own genetic information into them, replicate there, and then burst out and continue to do what they do. That's why viruses are on this like weird, like gray area. Like they're not really alive, but they're still a biological system that replicates with the help of another biologic system. And as bacteria are proper living things, they replicate themselves. They don't need a host to replicate. If you don't look at like parasites or, or some like specific bacteria that have a very particular life cycle, but usually they are sort of self-contained units. And that's why they can't really infect the viruses, but the viruses can take them as a host to get replicated and spread spread and get larger in number. And I think phages, so phages are the particular type of virus that can attack bacteria, particularly a type of virus that found associated with bacteria, I would say. Again, like I'm a plant scientist, plants also have a couple of viruses that can attack them. But the very famous ones are the T7 phages that can attach to bacteria and they have this like alien-like structure with the head and the stem and these feet that grab onto the bacterium and then they inject their DNA in there and then it gets activated. And the bacterium does pretty much only the thing that the virus wants and then bursts open and releases more of the virus. And that's why bacteria have a very strong interest in doing something against that, right? Like for the bacterium, for an individual bacterium also, or a bacterial colony, it's a bad thing if viruses infect them because then they spread and they can very easily go from cell to cell, replicate even more. Like every time they are amplified, they, they create like a few viruses only have to attach to a bacterium or technically just one and then hundreds of thousands of new virus particles are made and spread so if you imagine a bacterial colony that can be very quickly overrun by these viruses and killed and that's why bacteria had to evolve in a way that they can deal with that and CRISPR is one of the ways that they evolved with CRISPR they pretty much took the DNA that was injected by the virus and chopped to little pieces integrated it into their own DNA and used that as a recognition sequence so the next time a virus would inject its DNA they would have a matching um, set already in their own in the bacterial DNA that they could use to recognize the virus DNA and they could 
ring the alarms and say, look, there's a virus we attacked. And then they could activate specific enzymes that would then degrade the foreign DNA and the virus could not be active. So it would inject its DNA, the DNA would be degraded, and that's it. And the bacterium continues to live and do its thing. And that's essentially the role of CRISPR in bacteria in, like, in this relationship between bacteria and viruses. So essentially, we could say, to sum it up for the listeners in very simple terms, that CRISPR is a genetic engineering tool that we stole from the bacteria and then hijacked it for our purposes. And the bacteria has this defense mechanism for which we're using CRISPR now and integrates little spacers in between the DNA, essentially, or RNA for the bacteria, I believe. And these spacers, as what I understood from you, are essentially like a vaccination card or a database of past infections. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, you could say that's it's a database. They store CRISPR regions, like in these repeated regions, they store pretty much all of the foreign DNA that they encountered, and that's mostly viral DNA. They a catalog where they recognize uh, foreign DNA. In, in the concepts, it's similar to our immune system, where we identify a pathogen something that's making us sick then our immune system stores that information and can recall it later and then react quicker and we don't get as sick similar in a vaccination if you really look at the biology they these systems work quite differently in detail but as if you just look at them from a concept level they're very comparable if these spaces are essentially a vaccination card or a database of past infections which the bacteria has encountered could we then, say, collect a bunch of people that are immune against various diseases, add them all up into a history, into, say, one giant DNA sequence, and inject that into people so that they would be immune against these thousands of diseases, like, say, into one giant meta-vaccination, if you will? Would something like that be possible with CRISPR? The thing is that our immune system is not like the bacterial immune system in that in we don't use DNA detection mechanism. If we are infected with a foreign pathogen, for example, a virus, it's usually not the DNA that's recognized from the virus, but it's outer shell. So the proteins or molecules that make up the outer shell. And these are then detected by the immune system through a very different process. So we could not at all create the bacterial immune system in humans by just injecting sort of a database of DNA sequences of known pathogens. Because we lack the CRISPR system, like we don't have that internally in our genome that could then take that information and foreign DNA from viruses, for example. No, that would not be possible in humans with CRISPR. If it were only that easy. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not that easy. It would be very nice if that could work. So genome engineering isn't new. It's, I mean, been around for the 1970s. So what makes CRISPR so special? And how does it compare to, say, other genome editing tools? We have to look a little bit into the history and also into what we can actually do or could do since the 70s. And one of the first things that we were able to do was just transferring chunks of DNA, be it, and that could be any DNA had to have some like physical limitations in terms of size and elements had to be there. But overall, you could say we can take a gene from anywhere from the organism that we are working with or from another organism and that would then be a transgene if we bring it from a different organism and then we could introduce that into the genome model organism the thing is that if when we do that in most cases 
the integration of our gene that we introduce will be in a random location somewhere in the genome and want to make whatever is encoded on that gene that we're introducing, it's usually fine. Like we can have bad luck and hit part of the genome that's very important. And then we introduce our foreign gene in there and then it breaks something and then the whole organism suffers, is sick or dies. The chances are fairly in our favor that we just hit an area where it doesn't really matter if we add a little chunk of DNA there and then it's made and then and we're happy. And that's classic transgene methodology. And this is something that in certain steps has been around since the 70s, um, especially what was hyped in the 90s when we had this first hype of gene technologies that was exactly that, the introduction of transgenes, be it in human lines, in animal systems, in plants, for in plant breeding. All of that was just the idea that we take a, a foreign gene that encodes something interesting, for example, a resistance against a certain chemical that's in plant breeding, very interesting. And so, for example, the resistance... Um, against a herbicide, we can just take the gene that's responsible for that, put that into the plant genome, it integrates somewhere at random, then we just have to make sure that it's in a place where it's safe. And then the plant makes, on top of everything that the plant anyway does, it also makes our new gene product. That is classical gene technology. The thing there is it it's always relies on transgenes. It doesn't really make sense to integrate a gene that you already has again in the organism. In edge cases that can be useful, but you that doesn't really help much. It sort of gives the organism an ability that it already has. So why bother? Why invest the, the time and money into this? So you take something from a different organism and then you end up with all of these questions of ethics and biosafety. Is it okay if we take a gene that's isolated in a bacterium and put it in a plant? Is that okay or not? And many found that this is not okay. This is not something that they want to have as consumers. And that's why these transgene technologies, they are usually not very much liked by the public, at least in Western Europe, in the United States and in some other countries, other places in the world that have less of these ethical problems with that. But just keep in mind, transgene technologies are the classic approach. And now CRISPR comes along. And CRISPR is actually CRISPR-Cas9. We didn't really talk about the Cas9 yet, but just I want to say it once. And then afterwards, we can just talk about CRISPR because it's easier. But usually the system of CRISPR part and a protein part, that's called Cas9. And together they work. Literature, you will always hear CRISPR-Cas9. But today we're just going to talk about CRISPR. So when CRISPR came along, the very exciting thing about this is that it's not a tool to integrate DNA. It's a tool to cut DNA at a very specific location and then have the cell repair the cut that was done. And while it's repairing the cut, it has a tendency to make a mistake. And when it makes a mistake, it creates a point mutation there in this very spot. And this point mutation is then able to change the, the area of the DNA where the point mutation is. And that can be anything. That can be often destructive change. So you can destroy a specific gene where you know that if that gene is not there, then my organism performs better. Or in basic research, I just want to figure out what happens when we break that gene. But it can mean that we change a promoter sequence, sort of a regulatory sequence that controls how much of a gene is made. And we can increase its activity or decrease its activity with CRISPR. That's dependent on the location where we introduce that cut. Change in small and big ways locally with point mutations, the DNA, and the end result 
just that. It's just a gene with a point mutation. And point mutations happen all the time in nature. Whenever you go from one generation to the next generation, you have just randomly a couple hundred to a couple thousand point mutations all over the genome. And that means that when we use CRISPR, we end up with a result that if you hold it side by side to a naturally mutated gene, you can't tell the difference between the two because you didn't introduce anything foreign. You didn't introduce anything that wasn't there before. You made a small point mutation. After the fact, you can't really say that we did something there. So it's a system very close to what's happen na happening naturally without any sort of coincidence in there. We can exactly pinpoint a location where the activity happens and we know that it just happens at this location genome. So we, we don't have the problem that we have a random insertion and we we produce anything foreign. So both of the defining characteristics of classical gene technologies don't apply to CRISPR gene technologies. All right, if I try to sum this up for the listeners with an analogy, back in the 1970s and 90s, we had you know, fairly rudimentary tools that were more like, say, a shotgun. So we would go out, try to hit the target, and then just spray it with a bunch of lead bullets and see if we hit the target. And now we basically have CRISPR, which is very precise, where we would go in with, say, a sniper rifle and locate the target and hit the target exactly where we'd want it to. And with the sniper rifle, we could exactly target the gene section that we wanted to, and then the body would realize its self-healing properties, repair that damage, and then rebuild that gene, ideally in the exact location that we targeted. Is that generally a correct way to sum that up? Exactly. The shotgun uh, analogy is something that's often used. Other people like to use the word uh, scalpel for CRISPR technologies because you have these very precise cuts. You don't just rip out chunks. The analogy that I quite like to visualize the whole thing is that if you imagine you have a book that's the whole genome, classical or gene technologies would mean that you introduce a paragraph somewhere in the book. And sometimes the paragraph makes sense there. It's good and it's it's useful for sort of the performance of the whole book. And then you successful transgene inserted or you inserted your, your whole paragraph. But you can tell that this paragraph wasn't written by the original author of the book. It was from taken from a different book. With CRISPR, it's more about like a word processor and you have the control F command for search and then you can replace and then you search a, a specific sentence and in the book that only you can only find once in the book and then you delete one letter in, in the sentence and you can change a word from one word to another word. And I don't have a good example of a word or two words in mind that are just one letter apart, but I think our listeners can do that in their heads so you can simply change an individual word by removing just one letter or maybe two letters it's very small edits and then you close the book and then when somebody else picks up the book and goes through all the pages they don't know is that like a typo like they always happen when books are printed or is that something that somebody put deliberately in there and that's the difference between classical approaches that you can very easily trace yet yeah, blunt i mean i don't want to do injustice to the people who use classic gene technologies there's still a lot of skill a lot of knowledge about what they're doing but compared to crispr crispr is much more precise and has much smaller effects on the genetic code level the effects of the changes of the genetic code they can be fairly big but if you just look at the all the letters in the dna the changes are really small in simple terms, how does the whole process work? Let's say we have one gene and there's a certain area that interests us, what it does, because we're not sure. 
So take us through the, the process of, of how that whole thing works in very simple terms. Yeah. So let's say we have an unknown or gene of unknown function. That's usually what we start with in, in research. We picked up that this part of the DNA, this gene might be interesting. First of all, we need two things to start our CRISPR experiment. We need to know the sequence of the gene of unknown function that we are interested in. And it's very useful if we also know the entire genome sequence. And today we have genomes available for many different species, far not for all species, but for the sake of this example, let's say we work in something close to my heart, as is Arabidopsis. This is the most common model plant in plant research. And let's say we have an unknown gene, a gene of unknown function there, and we know the entire genome already. It's one of the first genomes that were sequenced, so we know already all of the other letters of the DNA. And then we can use a computational tool. There's a couple of them around now, and we can select the region where we want to have the cut and then the tool automatically searches for the best cutting site because there are some limitations and for the CRISPR system you can't exactly every single letter you can within a region select the site where you're cutting because it follows some physical constraints so this computer algorithm picks the perfect location for the highest chance of having successful CRISPR editing. Then you pick that sequence, it creates for you the, the sequence for the sort of guide RNA, which is the actual homing system that recognizes the target. And then you can just order that. You send that to a company, they create the RNA. And just as a little reminder, DNA is what we find in the genome. RNA is sort of the work copy. The DNA is translated into RNA. RNA is then made into proteins. So RNA is the active copy that's whenever gene is activated, RNA is made and has a ton of other functions in the cell as well. And one of the functions can be also work as a guide RNA and it, that can bind DNA. So we send that to the company. They send us, depending on how much money we pay within a week or within three months, they send us the RNA back in a little tube. And then we just mix that together with nine enzyme. Can do that either by integrating gene for Cas9 in with classic tools into Arabidopsis, into our model organism. Or what's even fancier, what many people use nowadays is we just take the protein the end of the, or just the enzyme and mix that together with the guide RNA that we just got from our company. And then we introduce that together in directly into a cell. For example, with microinjection, you might have seen that from like fancy videos, for example, for in vitro fertilization, where researchers, they look into a microscope and then they see a single cell and then they have a tiny needle that's smaller than the cell. They poke the cell and then they can inject something in there. I've seen that in action. It's crazy because you see the needle and it vanishes into nothing because it, at one point it becomes smaller than you, the what you can see with your naked eye so they poke into the cell they inject something in this case they inject the guide rna and the cas9 enzyme then in the cell the guide rna finds the target that we picked before on the computer in the genome sort of alerts the cas9 enzyme the cas9 enzyme then binds there as well and together they become active they cut the dna at the chosen site and then they go away again because once the DNA is cut, the whole binding is removed and they just float around and eventually they get degraded from the cellular machinery. So in the end, they're gone. But now we have a DNA that has a cut. And whenever the DNA breaks, that can happen naturally as well. The cell tries to repair that break and it takes that takes another strand of the same information because that is, hangs around in multiple copies in the cell, lines these two 
then another enzyme comes and tries to repair the break. Most of the time that works perfectly. And in the end, you have two parts that don't look any different. The CRISPR system can come again and just cut again. And it does that so often until there is a mistake made by the repair machinery, which it also does. Like in a, It has a certain chance to do that. I don't know if it's in the range of 1% of all cases have a mistake. It does that and it makes a mistake. And suddenly the sequence is changed the CRISPR system now can't bind anymore because now the sequence is different and now it can't bind anymore. But it also doesn't have to anymore. It's done its job. Then we're already done with the whole system. Then we can take our individual cell. We can make sure that from this one cell, we get a full organism. Again, in Arabidopsis, you do that through cell culture. You can do that with stem cells. You can do that in all kinds of organisms. You can just create from a single cell, again, a full organism and then the change in your genetic sequence. And if you do that with the way where you micro-inject your CRISPR into directly into the cell, you have no trace of it in the end. You just have the one point mutation that you introduced. You don't have anything else lurking around, leaving a trace. And so you can't really tell this this organism now apart from an organism that just by chance has the same mutation. Yeah. So that's, I hope in simple enough words, how it works. So you decide where you want to cut, you order your material, you do your experiment. And that's really by now, today, the methods are so advanced that it's really a week worth of experimenting or sometimes it's just a few days. So it's really fast. Generate your your cells and then you're done. So very quick turnaround from time. From the time your materials arrive from the company, that's usually the bottleneck, you can be done in a week or two and you have your desired mutation. So how long would this whole process take before we had CRISPR? Oh, in many organisms, you wouldn't be able to do anything like that in a directed manner. So what you would do then instead is that you create a ton of random point mutations. And you can do that, for example, by shining UV light at the organism or uh, specific chemicals. And they would just go with a certain probability. They would make breaks in the DNA and then the cell would repair them and make mistakes with again with a certain probability and in the end you can choose by the amount of exposure or concentration of a chemical how many mutations you get but you get a ton of mutations and then you screen for the ones that have the mutation in the place where you want to have your mutation you can imagine that's a numbers game if you have a genome that's a certain size that you need to have a certain amount of random mutations in there and an amount of repetitions that you can then find by chance the one mutation that you're looking for. And that's what we've been doing in classical breeding quite a lot. So could I kind of sum this up with an analogy? So let's say I would have a nut and I wanted to determine what type of nut it was, an almond, a walnut, a hazelnut. And I would take a hammer, our very crude method that I would have before CRISPR, and then try to hit the nut, cracking it open, but not completely destroying it. So would that be an aptly correct way to describe that? It's somewhat, we don't really try to figure out what kind of nut we have. We more try to change the nut in a certain way. An image that I used in the past is if you imagine you have a canvas in front of you and you want to color in a very specific spot there, you would just say color at your canvas by your your paintbrush against the canvas and I would splatter droplets all over the canvas in, in random locations and that a couple of times on different canvases that are all identical the one where you have to spot the your color exactly where you want it to be all of the other color around it where you don't want it to be all the other random splatters and then you take more of your identical canvases and you do something that's called back crossing where you cut your canvas in half your painted one and your unpainted one and then you recombine them and then you have half is painted half is unpainted and then you, you take the new combination where 
the color is still where you want it to be. You still have half of the canvas with random splatters. And then you do that again and you cut in a different way and half it and dilute out all of the other random hits that you have. So you only keep the one in the spot where you want to have it. And this is a process that takes very long because you always have to go through a next generation and depending on the organism that you work with, it can be a couple of days to a couple of years. Yeah, you dilute out all of the random things that you hit that you didn't want to hit because you might have broken something else and it's impossible to tell if you just do random mutagenesis is the word that's used for that. If you just randomly introduce mutations, it's really hard to say that your organism is still perfectly fine, even if the one thing that you want to hit and that you have 10,000 other hits somewhere else that you can't see right now. And so that's the main issue with it. It's still very random and you hit lots of things that you don't want to hit. And then you have to take great, put in a lot of energy to fix that. And with crossing, change that. And so long that you only have your desired mutation left and remove all of the undesired mutations. Okay, that makes sense. So could we use CRISPR on any organism? Yeah, technically that's not a problem because the the way the DNA repair works is very conserved on an evolutionary scale. That means something that works on the DNA level is will be very similar in plants, will be very similar in fungi. In many bacteria, you find similarities where these basic systems work. So from that part of the biology, it's fine. But when it comes to actual application, we come back to the thing that I said when we talked about the, the example. You need to know the sequence of your target and you should know the sequence of your genome because you always have to check that you when you select your sequence that you don't hit something else that you don't want to hit that has the similar sequence in the, in the dna or you know or you might maybe know that genes can exist in duplicate or very similar genes can exist within a genome and if you just want to hit one of them you have to make sure that you take a part of the gene that's very unique to that one copy so you don't hit anything else and to know about the anything else you need to know about the genome and as i said we know about many genomes, but by far not about all genomes. So if you pick a random desert plant, if you find a weird frog in the jungle, you won't be able to immediately take it to the lab and perform CRISPR on it. You first have to sequence it. In animals, it's fairly easy to sequence it. It just costs a little bit of money. In plants, the genomes are often very complicated and very large, so it sometimes takes researchers years and years of bioinformatic work to find a structure in the genome. You can't easily just throw it on a machine like in the movies and then 30 seconds later it gives you the entire genetic sequence of it. It takes five, sometimes 10 years. We have some things like tobacco that we've been working on for 20 years to create a functioning genome of it. And we still don't have like a very good working model for it. We know all of the letters, but we don't exactly know in which to puzzle together. It's very complicated. But yeah, but if we have these two things, if we know the gene and if we know the genome around it, then we can use CRISPR on it. Okay, so those people that were hoping to create the perfect girlfriend or boyfriend out of the lab are going to be pretty disappointed then. Yeah, it's not that easy. And even with CRISPR, it's still a numbers game, right? It's still in biology, you rarely almost never have 100% predictable outcome. So if you imagine now you would want to create your perfect partner or just a perfect human to have a lot of cells that you introduce a change to and with CRISPR, uh, with complex things, I don't know, a personality trait, if that's even genetic, a trait is often not linked to a single gene or a single mutation. So you imagine you have to introduce 
200 different mutations and each mutation has a chance of working and then you stack up all of these probabilities and you come up with a fairly low probability that all of them work together. So that means to be sure that you will have one embryo in the end that works, you need, I don't know, a couple hundred of embryos or maybe a couple thousand of embryos that you have to all do the mutations, uh, like introduce CRISPR to them, have CRISPR do try to do 200 different mutations and then analyze them, see if all of them work the way you want them to work and then select the embryo. So it becomes just from that point of view, very hard to do anything with a, a model organism like human where the amount of material you have is very limited. We can't extract a thousand embryos from a single couple. First of all, for ethical reasons, I really want to stress that I'm really aware of the ethical problems around human medical research regarding CRISPR. And that's why I want to stress that I'm not condoning it. And I think as a society, we should be very careful and critical about this. And so what I'm describing right now is purely from a technical or research point of view, it's very hard to do it need a lot of embryos. In mouse, there's much less of a problem to get a lot of mouse embryos. Or in plants, it's even less of a problem because you can just use the seeds and or use clonal reproduction and you can create thousands, tens of thousands of plants. Every time we sow seeds on a field, we create a, a new generation, like a next generation that's a couple 10,000 plants. And if we take that and do sort of statistical experiments on them that have a low probability, if you have 10,000 plants, chances are that you will still find the one that has all of the things that you want to have in them. But get 10,000 mice or 10,000 human embryos for, uh, with the same probability is close to impossible. So they Making your own superhuman with CRISPR, still not very feasible, apart from being ethically absolutely wrong. And I would not recommend doing that anyway. But if the ethics don't stop you, the technicalities of it will. Okay, so let's leave the ethics out for just a moment. We'll get to that part for, for sure. For some, from someone that knows nothing about the topic, but it's just, it just got me thinking, why can't we just sequence all the genomes that we have in our body or take the maybe simpler approach to sequencing everything in the embryo from which we derive later on and try to understand all the genomes, the interdependencies and the relationship between those genomes because after all, we have all the compute power that we ever want. So why not just process that whole, whole genome or all the genomes in our body and then try to understand the whole source code? The sequencing is not really a problem anymore. It used to be very expensive. The Human Genome Project was such a massive big deal because it cost millions of dollars to assemble the very first human genome. Because methods were more, more expensive or computing power was reduced to what we have today. So by now, depending on where you get it and how, how you do it, it costs like a thousand dollars or something to get a full human genome. So that's in terms of research money, that's almost nothing. Like a centrifuge costs more than getting the sequence data of a human. That's not a problem. Getting all of the letters identified and their order, the sequence is a problem. Figuring out how they relate to physical or to properties and we call that phenotypes basic comparatively basic things like hair color or eye color or size more complex the traits and size is already a complex trait it's not defined by a single gene by but by a couple of genes but to things like personality intelligence where we don't even know how much of our intelligence is genetic and how much of it is shaped by our upbringing these things they are so much more complicated than a single a to b relationship between a gene and a phenotype 
that makes it incredibly complicated to just figure out what is the role of all of these genes. And then also many of these genes, they are not on or off and that defines their activity, but it's the fine tuning of them. If we think about like our brain chemistry, if we have certain neurotransmitters that are just produced a little bit too much, like they're not completely overproduced and they're not completely absent they're just like 20% more than what the average human has they can already lead to things like depression or other like neuro diseases where we have a very complex sort of outcome of it like a, a depression is not a very is not a very clear diagnosis it's not a rash where you can very clearly see it but it's it's more complex than that and that's just on our brain chemistry and we have so so much of that we have that in all our organs throughout our system we have these gradual differences that are defined in our genetic code by the fact that in some humans a certain gene is 10% more active or 10% less active and these things if you all stack them on top of each other they become this multi-dimensional very complicated network where people are still like we don't we are we haven't understood it yet and we're also still pretty far away from fully understanding. We're uncovering more and more relationships and correlations and can figure out like if this cluster of genes has a certain change in their expression profiles. That means this cluster of genes, they all are 10% more active than on average. That can lead to people who are more willing to take risks. But then that doesn't mean that all of the genes in there have this direct risk but the whole cluster we're just as good as naming sort of the group and we we acknowledge that a couple of them might not be true and a couple of them might not be in there that are actually responsible for this trait so it's just biology is just so very complicated and that's just talking about the genetic information then there's a whole field of epigenetics that's on top of that that's something that's a very young research field where we're only uncovering what these effects are so um taking even if we know exactly all of the sequences are a human of human DNA of any organism, we can't predict with certainty outcome of that organism will be. And it's also something that's very hard to do technically. Like you could imagine now, okay, we just create an artificial genome and then we put it into an empty shell that has all of the machinery there to activate the genome and then become an organism and then we just look what the organism looks like and then we do this with like small changes and over time we figure out what's going on but this is synthetic biology and people are doing this but it's insanely complicated just for example for the fact that getting a long intact piece of dna without breaking into a cell is just very hard to manipulate because when you have a long stretch of dna it's essentially a very long molecular string and that breaks and that has a very weird viscosity. You can't really manip manipulate the, the liquids where you have the DNA in. So just from that standpoint, again, it becomes very hard to do sort of an experiment that is very easy to describe on paper. It's very hard to do then in the biological reality. So if we try to simplify this, this is like having human life being written in source code, but we don't know what the what programming language was used for the code so we don't understand what the objects are what parts of the code are maybe scripts but some of them are commented out so we don't know which parts don't do anything and then also the user interacts also dynamically changing the code so that would be like our social environment changing the gene expression for instance could that be proper uh, analogy to explain why that's so complicated to understand? Yeah, 
it's like a very complex programming language. It has like multiple layers and we don't know all of the commands yet. There might be hidden commands in there that do very complicated things, but we don't know them yet. We have all of the letters along, but they're written in a language that we don't speak. Any random combination of letters could be a control sequence or could mean nothing. And figuring out where the control sequences are and then figuring out what they do and then following that through the multiple layers that are in my program code is very complicated. And I'm not enough of a programmer to know if that's, for example, the same as like assembler code. To me, that sounds like you just have the zeros and the ones that are going into the process and all of them but then going back from all the zero and zeros and ones to a functional programming code that is understandable what's going on to me seems like an equally impossible thing but maybe that's possible in it but in biology it's not how far are we along from say curing certain diseases cancer or parkinson's or say even hiv as I'm a plant scientist, I want to mention that here on the podcast, I I can't really say solid things about the scope of where we are, but I looked up a little bit what are these diseases and what's going on there. And to go through them quickly is cancer is a very complex disease where you don't have a single type of cancer. You probably know that you have like skin cancer and bone marrow cancer and lung cancer and all of these cancers, they work differently on a biological scale. Usually like the simple form is there is a cell type that multiplies uncontrolled, forms a tumor and that tumor presses on something that's important to you and then you die. That's a very basic understanding of cancer. But how these different cell types start to multiply rapidly and uncontrollably is very different when it happens in the bone marrow or when it happens in the skin cell. And that's why we can treat things like skin cancer much more easily than we can treat bone marrow cancer. I guess I can't really say when can we defeat cancer because probably with time we will become better at treating many different types of cancer. But I can imagine that it's possible that there's just some types where we can't treat it really. Certain brain cancers, certain other organ cancers where we can't treat them like where forever it will be in a place where anything that we do in this area will do more harm than good and we will kill the patient so yeah that could be i guess that in the next decade or two we will see definitely masses in, in cancer treatment but i wouldn't wait for a complete cure of cancer in reality the next thing is hiv hiv is a virus that has a very complicated or very complex infection pattern the main thing you have to know about hiv is that it can shield itself with additional shell that like it's human and therefore our immune system can't tell hiv virus particles apart from anything else in the body and so they can't distinguish them and so they can't specifically attack hiv and that's why it's so hard to cure that and very very hard to develop any cure for that because anything that we develop any drug any sort of immune treatments if we would imagine we boost our own immune system in a certain way maybe with crispr maybe with something else we still have to come around the problem that hiv cells look like body cells or hiv particles it's not a cell it's a virus particle they look like body cells so if we can't overcome this problem we won't be able to cure it we can cure the effects of it already now people with hiv they can live long and healthy lives they just have to take certain drugs all the time they already now you can say in rich countries you can survive it very well we still we can't be sure that it's completely that we can completely eradicate it and then finally parkinson is a very complicated brain disease and i when i looked it up it said we don't know the cause yet and if we don't know the cause we can't really develop a treatment um, we can imagine that maybe in the next decade or two or three we will figure out what's going on and we figure out it's genetic 
Then we could imagine using CRISPR to change the genes of embryos before they're implanted into the mother and change the genes that are responsible for Parkinson in a way that Parkinson can't develop anymore. But that's completely sci-fi. That's Right now, that's not based in any reality because we don't know what Parkinson. Um, there are some diseases that we can that we can cure. Genetic diseases, we can imagine figuring out where the problem lies and then designing CRISPR therapy to change that. But we can only change that in in embryos. So if you are an adult human and you have a genetic disease that affects. For example, your neurons across your body. So from from your brain, through your spine, down to your feet, all neural network connections have a problem and that's genetic. Right now, we don't have a method to bring the CRISPR system into all of the cells that are affected. We can only bring it into the embryo so that we change it when it's only a couple of cells uh, big and then all of the cells are changed and then cure is transmitted during the growth of the embryo into the entire system. So in this specific case, so if we know it's a genetic disease and we can do a CRISPR therapy in the embryo, then we can cure the genetic disease. All right, so we're not Prometheus yet. No. So essentially we need much more work that we have to put in to understand these very complex diseases. Is CRISPR also currently being used for vaccination development, say for the COVID-19 virus? I can imagine that it's used in the basic research leading up to it. So when you are studying the pathogen, so the bacterium or the virus, and you want to introduce small mutations there to see how it behaves and want to study it, which are the points of attack for your vaccine. There I think it's used. Vaccine development itself has been still done in a biological system in chicken embryos and chicken eggs where the system is actually quite simple. You infect the chicken egg with your pathogen, then the pathogen replicates in the chicken and the chicken immune system then fights the pathogen. And then in the end, you take your chicken embryo that has been infected for four weeks and then you extract the antibodies that the chicken made. You clean up the antibodies you mix that with some stabilizers and then you have a human vaccine and you uh, usually it takes about one egg per dosage of vaccine but this entire system is completely devoid of genetic engineering essentially in a simplified way you take the, the the pathogen that makes you sick you inject that into the egg you let the chicken make the antibodies you take the antibodies from the chicken you put the antibodies in the human and then helps the immune system although i i should say you you extract the antibodies from a chicken but most vaccinations they are not antibody vaccinations but they are the pathogen is injected and then you train your own immune system so you take the antibody from the chicken and you can use that as antibody therapy for your dosage but you can also take a weakened form of the pathogen inject that into humans and then the human immune system takes care of it and for the weakening of your pathogen you could use something like crispr you could knock out the genes so destroy the genes that make the pathogen very dangerous. So it's only able to replicate and it, it looks like the dangerous thing, but it doesn't actually have its weapon anymore. You, you break the, the sword that it has to attack you, but you leave its whole arm and everything there. And then you send it into the human body. And then when it tries to attack anything, it can't because it doesn't have a weapon, but it still looks exactly like the evil invader. So your immune system can identify it, learn from it, but is at no risk of actually being stabbed because there's no sword there anymore. So as you could use CRISPR, but again, for example, for COVID, COVID is a viral disease and viral vaccination research is still a little bit different and you don't really inject active virus into the body. So I don't know how much you would use, how much use CRISPR would be for vaccination development in case of COVID. 
We talked about what's possible with CRISPR, but what are some areas where you say this is completely hyped or where we still have a lot of limitations in in certain areas? Or what are just some hype topics that are being propagated by the public where you're just scratching your head and like, yeah, that's never going to happen? I think whenever it comes to sort of the the pick and choose building blocks ideas where you just say, be it a crop plant or a human or an animal, where you say, okay, yeah, we want a cow that has no horns, that gives us 400 liters of milk every day, um, that also makes perfect meat for for a steak, buy a lot of food and it doesn't drink any water, so it's really cheap and upkeep. These things, they are all individually so complex to to quit and the combination of them we just don't have the knowledge for that so we can't create just at will a perfect crop we can't at will create a a human super soldier or anything like that any of these sci-fi stories that come up when you think about genetic engineering where people get scared and get afraid that spirited people will just create evil beings these things that are just not possible for just for the basic reasons that we don't even understand enough to create these traits and probably still take us decades to get any anywhere near this sort of understanding of biological systems so i think that's the sci-fi aspect of it where i think that people have have still the wrong idea and yeah because it's something that's very attractive in movies and something that's very easy to tell fear-mongering stories in articles about the technology but yeah but apart from that we have some limitations in in the technology that we can only do the things that we know already something about we have come a very long way with research but there's still this massive ocean of things that we don't fully understand and where we still have every year we have breakthrough science articles show something completely new that uncover a process that we haven't understood before and there's no end inside it's not that we are at 90 percent done and soon we have figured everything out for the foreseeable future probably like my children and probably my children's children will still have enough research to do in biology to figure things out to understand how everything's connected crispr adheres to the same limitations so we can't do anything in crispr that we don't understand yet how it works i think yeah that's the limitations of the technology and of what people think is possible with it Yeah, this really reminds me of the iPhone moment where Steve Jobs introduced copy and paste to the iPhone. And it was like, this is going to be a major revolution. And we're all like, okay, that copy and paste, that's really helpful. So we can cut and paste now. And we're all imagining this this beautiful world where we can use this copy and paste, this tool, and generate with this feature the next Shakespeare it seems very similar to that yeah and as i said before like we just don't know what even makes the next shakespeare even if you would have good dna samples of shakespeare or any other person of history that we deem to be extraordinary we would still not be able i mean we could clone this person we could recreate that person but we could not understand all of the complex underlying on gene relationships that we could take the genius like the literary genius of a shakespeare and put that into any other human it's just not something that has such a simple relationship it's probably a thousand different genes that are very slightly t- 
tuned perfectly to come up with the literary mindset of somebody like Shakespeare, to keep it in that example, the specific upbringing that he might have had. So even if we create this clone of his and bring it up in our modern world, it might not end up writing like amazing literature because, yeah, we don't even know how much of that is genetic. So there's one big topic we haven't talked about yet, which is ethics. And I believe every scientist should be aware of the ethical dilemmas but using certain technologies within their field. Now, I personally believe that nature is still so complex that we still haven't really understood the basics. Even though we think we're so wise and have come so far, we should be very careful with things like gene-modified food, as we don't really know what some of these long-term effects are. And I'm not talking about decades, I'm talking about maybe 100 or 200 years. This argument kind of also follows recent studies showing that CRISPR-edited genes can inadvertently trigger cancer. That's why many scientists currently argue that experience in humans are premature. The risks and uncertainty around CRISPR modifications are extremely high. But at the same time, I really don't want to limit innovation. After all, I'm an innovation consultant and, and know that we have to try and experiment a lot to find breakthroughs. This is the one side of the argument, and it's a libertarian one. So with any technology, it's not a question whether it gets applied, but rather who will have access to it. And there's also this tendency in technology to become cheaper and essentially democratizing a technology. And this is also the stance that the bio hacking community has or is taking. And I believe sometime in 2018, a scientist in China reported that he had created the world's first human babies with CRISPR-edited genes, who were a pair of twin girls that were resistant to HIV. So essentially, when we let the Pandora out of the box, there's actually no going back. So this is basically a long-winded way to basically ask, um, in some ways, we're, we're playing God, in other ways, this technique is a scientific miracle. So what's your take on this discussion? How far should we really take it? I personally divide this question into two parts. In humans, I have a very strong stance of saying I think it's unethical to do this to use CRISPR technologies in human. And I think the risks far outweigh any potential benefit. As I said, like the scope for gene therapy is fairly limited. Once we start, we have already information, for example, of about certain correlation between mutations and breast cancer, for example. So it would be not a big technical problem to create a CRISPR therapy that just avoids some of the mutations that are linked to a higher risk of breast cancer. And then we could do that and we could create a lot of girls that have a reduced chance of getting breast cancer. And you can make the case that's a net benefit. That's a good thing. The problem is that we then end up, we, we can't possibly make this technology available to everyone because this is, it still requires embryonic manipulation that's very costly, labor intensive, and also far away from the way we usually like to have babies, which is having intercourse and then having a baby with no doctor required, with no puncture of the ovaries where then egg cells are removed and then are mixed with sperm so they develop as to embryos in a petri dish. This is something that people do who either have money and a certain interest in having these genetic modifications or like couples who uh, want to go through in vitro fertilization because 
that's their only chance at getting a child. So the people who have access to this technology is a fairly small number of people. But the changes that are done then, these changes are genetic changes. That means all of their offspring carries that and that will lead to essentially genetically, objectively superior people because then you have people who have for example, a lower risk at certain cancers, their kids have a chance of having also risk at lower cancer because they inherit the mutations from their parents. So if you imagine you have two in vitro babies that have both been modified to have less cancer risk and then um, later in life they meet and they have kids, their kids will also have a reduced chance of cancer as only the this, this socioeconomic favored people, so rich people, will have access to this. You will create a rich class that is genetically better they have a, le a reduced chance of getting sick and once we figure out more links of disease to genes you can extend the list it will will then not be only cancers and they will also have a reduced risk of getting certain other genetic diseases and so on while the rest of the population they are still being hit by all of these diseases and this is a very dystopian reality to me because that means you will have people who will be genetically better and that's not even touching on many of the ethics of what happens when we figure out how we can do skin color or eye color or hair color will, will we then get a lot of people who follow their own stereotypes and introduce that into the genes of their babies and even if they themselves have a darker skin tone they just modify their babies to the point that they have light skin and blonde hair and so suddenly you have also like a physically different looking richer class that's less prone to disease and i find that very dystopian to be fair these are things that are um, still a little bit further away on the horizon but technically they are within reach and that's why i think in humans i don't really see how much good can come of it start developing these sort of therapies they will be accessible to people uh, even if we start with the purest goals in mind once we have established solid working methods people will use them for less than nice things that's why i think this is an area where i personally would not want to see a lot of research being done or publicly funded because it's still everything is so expensive and complicated that if we leave it in the hands of just a few private companies it will still be decades away until it will work reliably but if we put a lot of public money on it and public institutes worldwide join the research course you can imagine how much quicker everything will happen so that's why i am personally in favor of a call to on human crispr research not for diagnosis but for treatment purposes the second part of my answer is in plant breeding i see much less of a problem because in plant breeding we don't have the ethical problem of removing Moving uh, failed attempts and we are already doing for centuries genetic modification and genetic selection something is conceivable in humans that we would just like grow 10,000 humans pick the best performing 10 and then use them for the next generation eugenics essentially this is something that we do constantly in plant breeding and we've done that for thousands of years since we first started to breed wheat and use wheat as a crop we started to modify the original grasses by selecting them and without understanding what's going on we were selecting for certain genes and for certain genetic information and we have done that until today where now we have very good knowledge about the wheat genome and we're still selecting and manipulating it and we're just getting better at the tools that we're using and CRISPR is a great addition there because with CRISPR we can stop the or avoid the very long and costly process of 
randomly inserting mutations and then selecting the ones that we like and then crossing seven, ten times to sort of dilute out all of the unwanted we had, we can just directly introduce the one mutation that we know from basic research is beneficial to our crops. And I see much less of an ethical problem there because from our yeah millennia of breeding, we don't really introduce a lot of harm to the environment and to the ecosystem. Or the harm that we introduce it doesn't come from the genetic selection of our crops. It comes from the way we do the farming. It comes from our tractors, from the diesel engines, from the way we use land, and not from the way we modify the wheat to grow on the land. And therefore, I think something that's very much discussed in the European Union, the ethics of using genome editing in crop research or in crop development, they much understand of saying we understand the system good enough that we can be sure that it's definitely less risky than the methods that we used before and therefore i don't see any issue with using genome edited crops it's a completely different setup from the human setup because we're doing genetic selection anyway all the time in breeding research yeah i believe also jennifer downer one of the scientists that found the crispr technique asked for a moratorium on any clinical trials involving humans so we could discuss the implications and risks of this technique now, personally, I'm not so sure we humans are really good at keeping the genie in the bottle. We're just too curious in a negative way. With any technology, it gets cheaper, and we humans tend to find ways to make things much cheaper. And we can maybe prolong this process, but we've seen this already in our history, where we found and understood nuclear energy and then used it for atomic bombs, and now once they're out, everyone wants one, and hopefully we won't use it in that way again. Or another example is when we used fish or whale oil for our lighting and then we switched to fossil fuel. It's really hard to switch from fossil fuel because that's in plastic, cosmetics, and everything. And once you get hooked onto that, well, it's really hard to get off that uh, drug. And the implications of editing our genes are, well, much more dire. And I'm not so positive on us humans. We tend to let the Pandora out of a out of the box and once she's out uh, i don't think she's willing to go back in let's put it that way yeah absolutely i'm also if i'm i worry about this movie um about crispr that talks to i think jennifer downer and to emmanuel charpentier who was the second uh, woman that they worked with on developing the method they are both in the movie but also a lot of silicon valley researchers who want to build products based of crispr in humans and their very lax approach to it and they're very much they're very much driven at least in in the things they say in the movie about this need to innovate and this idea that innovation is inherently good these are things and these are people who worry me because yeah as you said if we have it out of the box we can't put it back in and genetic modification always has implications for our future generations it's not something we can take back like you could imagine a world where we just say we ban fossil like burning fossil fuel and we could stop that and then with some like transition period it would be gone but any gene that is changed in a human if we don't kill the human or stop it from breeding or reprodu reproducing, which both are highly unethical and morally wrong, we can't stop that modification from continuing to live on. And therefore, it has much higher risks and is much harder to control than any 
other technology right like we could if like with nuclear energy we have the problem of the decay so this is something that will also stick around for a long time the nuclear waste but still if we would shut down the plants and deactivate the bombs then the, the radioactive matter would still be there but the things would pretty immediately cease to exist but we can't do anything like that with changed genetic information that's in the reproducing system out there but i'm pretty sure we won't solve this dilemma but to wrap up this episode, is there anything or something that I didn't touch on or forgot to ask you that I should have mentioned? There's one positive thing that I want to say about CRISPR, apart from the fact that like, I'm actually, I, I, I talked a lot about the risks and the challenges, and especially in humans, I find that we need to be very careful. But CRISPR for basic research is an amazing tool. And I say that with all honesty. It's amazing what we can do with it now. Um, when I was working in the lab, it was before CRISPR became widely available. Um, it was pretty much when I left the lab that my, my fellow researchers who stayed, they started using CRISPR in the lab. And it's, it's crazy how much quicker basic re research became because of CRISPR. Studying knockouts, so breaking down genes and looking what's happening, is a standard method in basic research. Um, you can do that there because yeah, it's just research. You're not letting anything out into the environment, so you can break and play around with anything and figure out how they work. That's that's how we do research. And before that, we used to rely on very slow, unprecise, and uh, labor-intensive methods to knock out genes. And sometimes it would just not be possible. And now with CRISPR, we we have it our fingertips any mutation that we need and therefore we can do research so much quicker and on top of that we will see a huge spike now in methods developed based off CRISPR. If we look at PCR, which is something that was invented in the 80s, it's a method to replicate DNA. If you just look at the basic method, it's fairly simple and has one task. It makes you put in a little bit of DNA and you get a lot of the same DNA out of it. And that's that's important for, for research. Then you can, if you have a lot of DNA, it's easier to analyze it. So that in itself is pretty important. And I was doing so many PCR reactions in my lab. But on top of PCR, people build new methods and modern sequencing is based on PCR. Without PCR, we wouldn't be able to decipher genomes and CRISPR will be a similar tool for the future. We will see something that we can't imagine yet. We will see new methods emerging that use CRISPR as one part of several steps to create new methods that will allow us to do all kinds of things that we can't imagine yet. Um, the same how PCR enabled a lot of different analytical and and research methods without which we wouldn't be where we are today. And that's why I'm generally excited about CRISPR for basic research. It's just, it's this incredible tool and people, they, they change the Cas9 enzyme for a different enzyme and suddenly they can not cut the DNA but change a single letter of the DNA or they can change something on the epigenetic code or they can attach a marker to that specific area so they can have like little light shining from where the, the thing binds on the DNA and they can learn stuff from that. So it's pretty crazy what we can do with this and I'm sure it's crazy what we will be able to do with this. Uh, and I think I would like to end on this level, this note of excitement for the method to sort of counter <laughs> the very worrisome tales of human research with CRISPR is that it's a milestone method that will influence research for years to come. 
All right. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way of doing so? They can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Science Joram, tweeting in German and English, to however I feel. You can always shout to me there and talk to me. I'm very happy to also discuss further questions and so on. If you want to know more about plant science, because I touched plants quite a bit in this episode, together with friend Tegan, we are running the blog plantsandpipettes.com, where we plant research. We try to break it down into simple words that even biologists can understand. Plant biologists, so it's sometimes hard to avoid all of the jargon, but we try. So you can check that out on plants pipettes.com and there's also a podcast where we present current research from the world of plants it's sometimes about crispr but often it's not about crispr i wrote it's about crispr and i will send you the links and you can put them in the show notes uh, so if you want to have a look at them they are linked with this episode where a little bit about the regulatory question of crispr in crops in, in plants uh, in the european union i think two years ago by now there was a very controversial ruling by the european court of justice and i talk a little bit about that that goes too far for this episode you can read that if you follow the links perfect i'll make sure to include all those links in the uh, show notes thanks again yoram for being on the podcast and taking the time to explain crispr to the listeners yeah it was a pleasure i i'm very happy that you had me on the podcast and i hope i could explain something in understandable words and i hope all your listeners will learn something from it and take something home All right, that wraps up another episode. Now it's time to summarize and give you some additional insights and some of my thoughts on the topic. So as you're probably already aware, by the end of this episode, CRISPR is not only a scientific breakthrough, but also a very powerful tool for anything from agriculture to medicine. I also recommend you watch the trailer to the documentary Human Nature that I've included in the show notes if you're interested in this topic. But as with any technology or major breakthrough, we still need to explore the limits and potential side effects of CRISPR. In particular, society needs to discuss all the ethical considerations at play here. For example, if we edited human DNA, future generations wouldn't be able to opt out. This is something Yora mentioned in the episode. So genetic changes might be too difficult to undo, and sometimes the genie can't be put back into his bottle. Just think of the discovery of nuclear power, which led to one of the most horrific weapons we humans have created. This challenge, though, isn't new by any means. The Swiss writer Friedrich Dürrenmatt wrote about this very dilemma in his satiric drama The Physicists, where one of the protagonists convinces the other two that the scientific knowledge he has gained or uncovered is too dangerous to be made public. Mankind cannot be trusted with such power. So all three men make the self-sacrificing decisions to stay in the asylum to protect the world. And as most things in life, there is no good or bad. You can use a kitchen knife to make yourself a sandwich or go out and kill someone. And so the technology itself is not to blame, but how we as a society use any given tool. But hey, I'm not going to act like I know the answer, but instead try to provide you with some insights into this dilemma by one of my favorite modern philosophers, Alan Watts. And I'm going to quote a short paragraph from him, which goes something like this. And so life is a system, or now you see it, now you don't. And these two aspects always go together. For example, sound is not pure sound, it is a rapid alternation of sound and silence. And that is simply the way things are. Only you must remember that the crest and the trough of a wave are inseparable. Nobody ever saw crests without troughs or troughs without crests. 
just as you do not encounter in life people with fronts but no backs, just as you do not encounter a coin that has heads but no tails. And although the heads and the tails, the fronts and the backs, the positive and negatives are different, they are at the same time one. And one has to get used to, fundamentally, to the notion that different things can be inseparable and that what is explicitly two at the same time can be implicitly one. If you forget that, very funny things happen. If therefore we forget that black and white are inseparable and the existence is constituted equivalently by being and non-being, then we get scared and we have to play a game called, uh-oh, black might win. And once we get into the fear that black, the negative side, might win, we are compelled to play the game. But white must win, and from there, start all our troubles. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Just head to our podcast website, innovationalcorrectness.com or gammabeyond.com, or just follow us on LinkedIn. There you will also find long-form articles, videos, and other podcast episodes about innovation and transformation. And if I could ask you for one small favor, it would be this. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Overcast, or the podcast app of your choice. It really helps us out by encouraging more people to find our podcast and reach hard-to-get guests. Last but not least, if you have any suggestions, for further episodes or guests that we should invite on our podcast or just have feedback, you have three options. Emailing us at info at gammabeyond.com, filling out our anonymous feedback form at innovationalcorrectness.com, or leaving us a voice message with your question or feedback so that it can be included in the podcast and all listeners can profit. Just go to innovationalcorrectness.com. Links are in the show notes. 